Continuing in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the most dangerous of lies. We have seen the word of the Lord that Amos saw. Not that he heard, but that he saw. For in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it is written, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, that would be the first, or the second, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake, Amos saw the word that came to him because the word is not simply a message or information that is being transmitted. Instead, the word is a person, the very word of the Lord, the expression of his character. And what was it that Amos saw? Nothing less than the Lord himself roaring forth from Zion. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Amos saw the Lord himself in all of his holiness and righteousness roaring forth from Zion producing a duality of result where the children of God come to him trembling, but the wicked harden their hearts against the judgment of the Lord. And the result of that hardening is that the Lord will send fire, specifically upon Syria and Philistia, upon Tyre and Edom, upon Ammon and Moab for the sins that they have committed against the covenant people of God. For there is none righteous, no, not one, not even Judah, of whom God swore to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. And yet, in spite of the eternal establishment of this throne, Judah finds themselves under the judgment of a holy, righteous God. In Amos chapter 2 this morning, verses 4 through 5, the prophet continues with that which he saw, and he says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And so I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Here in very short, truncated order, we see the prophet lists the transgressions of Judah that the Lord showed him. Here we see the offense, and it is fundamentally different from the offense of the nations around them that the Lord has spoken of thus far. The Lord is offended. He is appalled at Judah. And the reason he is appalled, number one, because they have rejected his law, and number 
too because they have not kept his statutes. They have rejected the law of the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four. I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Judah was put to the choice. They made the decision. This week at camp, in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 15, we saw Joshua put them to the choice. They're put to it over and over, yes, continually throughout their existence. We're in Joshua 24, verse 14. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil, here's the choice. Here's the reckoning. What do you reckon? What do you divide? Where do you cut? What's your judgment? If it is evil, in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. The service of the Lord is not any mundane choice. It is not the choice that you make while sitting at the drive-thru trying to decide whether you're going to order the number one supersize or the number four supersize or if you're just going to get two of the number three. It is not a mundane choice. It's not an indifferent choice. It is a choice that declares that which your heart sees as good versus that which your heart sees as evil. A choice not to follow the Lord is not just one choice out of many. It is a declaration that you have judged, that you have cut, that you have deemed, that you have chosen, that to do so would in fact be evil, thus you are not doing it. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But Joshua had made his choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They were put to the choice. They had to make a decision. And by the time we get to Amos, they had chosen poorly. But not only have they chosen poorly, they have also, having rejected the law of the Lord, therefore the natural implication of that is having rejected that law, then they would not actually go out and do, they would not keep his statutes. The very statutes of which it is written in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, if a person does them, not just holds them intellectually as being truth, but then if he keeps those statutes, if he does them, he will live by them. And so here you see the offense before God for the sins of Judah. Not only have they rejected the law of the Lord as being evil instead of as being good, but having rejected it, of course, they do not follow after it. The means by which they arrived at this, I would have you note, are both self-inflicted and generational. They did it to themselves but it wasn't limited to themselves. It continued on after them. Their lies have led them astray. 
those after which their fathers walked. When you look at Israel at this point in time in their history, they're a nation of both past and future failure. For they are a stiff-necked people, quick to turn to self-corruption. As a matter of fact, if you want to look backwards in their history, I mean, if you want to know what someone is going to be, typically a good place to start is what they have been. Apart from specific miracle, men will continue along the path of that one in whose image they were born, their father Adam. And so when you look at Israel at this point in their history, they're a people of both past and future failure. For when left to themselves at their very beginning of nationhood in the wilderness, they barely made it past a month in faithfulness on their own. If you've got your Bibles with you tonight, let's look at Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, in verses 7 through 9, we see the beginning of rebellion, the beginning of forsaking the law of the Lord, the beginning of not keeping His statutes in them as a nation. In Exodus chapter 32, in verse 7, we're recording the events surrounding the production and the worship of the golden calf. Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai in order to receive the law of God directly from the hand of God. And at this point in time, he's been gone for right on 40 days. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. It doesn't mean he's just looked upon them. He's seen them. Naked beneath their clothes. Sinew and bone beneath their skin. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They couldn't make it 40 days in faithfulness to the God who had been faithful to them for generations. They couldn't make it 40 days in faithfulness to a God whose fire was currently descended on top of Sinai in their sight. Very stiff-necked and rebellious people and the result of that individual event there in the wilderness of Sinai is that 23,000 died on the spot. When the Lord roars, He roars. 23,000 died on the spot and over the course of the next 40 years, millions would die wandering about the wilderness. And because this was the nature of who God was and because this is the nature of who they were, the Lord had warned them about His holiness. Guys, we talk about the holiness of the Lord all the time, but I'm here to tell you, if you are a fallen sinner, the holiness of God is such 
that it is pertinent that the Lord would give you a warning about his own being, that he himself is both your hope and extremely dangerous to you. This is why the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord go hand in hand in Leviticus chapter 26. The Lord warns all of Israel, Judah included, about the nature of his holiness and the way that it will interact with their sinfulness if they forsake the law and refuse to keep the statutes by which his grace is coming to them in order that they may live. He says, look, here is my law. Here are the statutes that you must keep if you accept it. It is by this that grace is coming to you. It is by this that grace is being manifest in your presence. It's probably a better way to say it. Will you walk in it or not? Is it good to you or is it evil? The Lord warns them about His holy nature. In Leviticus chapter 26, in verse 14 through 17, the Lord says this, If you will not listen to me, and will not do all of these commandments. But if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. What a miserable existence. Man, I got to tell you, Friends, sleep in the sleep of the redeemed is a good, good thing. And I've known it since I was seven years old. To the point that so much of my life, I've spent so much of my life sleeping the sleep of the redeemed, friends, I have a hard time, I think, truly grasping what it was like not to. I remember bits and pieces. I was seven years old when the Lord saved me. And let's face it, even at seven, the burdens of a seven-year-old and the depth of their sin, while high and demanding and far short of the holiness of God, do not have perhaps the depth of the color palette of the weight of a man. And I look at the lost. And I look at the anxiety that they have. The fear that they live in. The kind of thing that would cause a man to flee when no one pursues. That causes people just to run in circles constantly trying to answer their anxiety. There's a whole pharmaceutical industry that is built around this concept. Just run, 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 run. And you want to tell them, don't be worried. 
Don't be afraid. But the reality is, is they have very good reason to be worried and very good reason to be afraid. These things are only answered in Christ. <laughs> Worry not for tomorrow is a statement that can only be grasped at the foot of the cross. Nowhere else. And he looks down on his people and he says, Look, my grace is being manifest to you in this law. Man, it is the testimony according to Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. It is the testimony of the fullness to Christ that is to be revealed. It is functioning in you right now. And if you walk away from it, if you reject it, and out of rejecting it, refuse to keep my statutes, if you do this, there is nothing left for you but panic and fear because of the judgment of a holy God. And God doesn't say, listen, my ways are right and good, so if you do them, it just so happens that things will work out well for you. Now look, there's tr that's true. God's ways are right and good. If you do them, they will work out well for you. If a man that is not born again will do all of the stuff that Scripture says to do in righteousness and avoid all of the things that it says to avoid in iniquity, his life will turn out better than if he just went out there and grabbed all the iniquity that he could get. He will have a better experience on this earth. If your health's bad, your cholesterol's high, go eat a kosher diet. It will improve. But if you think for a moment that that's what God is saying to them, you might as well be reading the yellow pages. It's not what he's talking about. This is not general truth that God's ways are just generally good and things would go better for He says, if you depart from this, the reason you will be in panic is because I will make you panic. The reason you will be in dread is because I will cause you to dread. The, eat, the reason that you will plant your seeds and have an empty belly is because I will make sure your enemies get it. He warns them of his holiness. He is set apart. He is different. He is other than. The choice was put before them and they did not listen. And so it comes to its fulfillment. It's coming like a runaway train by the time Amos writes. It was just as certain and just as true when Moses was writing. 750 years after the golden calf and 230 years after the judgment that was shown to Amos in Amos chapter 2 about the nation of Judah, Daniel would write from exile in Babylon when the fire of the Lord had fallen as he roared that it would. And in Daniel chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, Daniel writes this, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. They rejected the law, they transgressed the law, and because they had rejected it, they obviously refused to do it. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God that we just read in Leviticus, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us 
because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, and yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. And so here's what Daniel says. He says, here we are, man. Here we are in Babylon. And nothing has ever happened like what happened to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's siege of that city is all of the horrors that you can imagine a siege could possibly be. The Word of God says there's never been one like it before. And friends, that's saying something because the the Assyrians were impressive siege artists. And he says, man, what came to us? What came to us by the very hand of a holy God for our iniquities and turning away from the good things that he offered us made all that look like nothing. And yet, Daniel confesses that they have not entreated the favor of the Lord their God. They have not turned from their iniquities and gained insight by God's truth. I would propose to you that if insight through truth would lead to them turning from their iniquities so that as Daniel suggested if they would if they would go to the truth of God and gain insight to that it would cause them to then turn from their iniquities and return to the law of the Lord and return to keeping his statutes if that's true then it was abandonment of that truth that led them to turn to iniquity in the first place They wouldn't be where they're at. They wouldn't be needing to turn to His truth to gain insight so they could repent if they had stayed with His truth and had insight from the beginning. A truth that was given particularly to them out of all of the nations of the earth. In Judah, we see the madness of choosing judgment. We see a people who has believed the most dangerous of all lies. I want you to compare and contrast the kingdom of Judah with all of the kingdoms that have been listed before, the Syrians and and the Philistines and and Ammon and Moab and the city of Tyre and, and all of these guys we've looked at before. Here is Amos. Here's what he saw. The Lord is roaring from Zion. Carmel melts. And man, he starts dropping judgment like a hammer. And he's going through all of these nations that surround the people of Israel. And he speaks about all of these Gentile nations. And they're all being judged harshly with a judgment of fire for transgressions that they committed in its primacy against other Men. They're being judged for taking the promised people of God captive and selling them to Edom. Edom's being judged for being willing to buy every single son 
of Jacob that they can get their hands on. These are sins that in their first act, in their first commission, are against other men. But Judah's being judged for something different. Judah is judged for transgressions against God himself. Now Judah did plenty against other men, but that is not what the Lord seems to be concerned with. He's concerned with the fact that they have offended him and what they have done in rejecting his law when they were chosen as a people different and set apart holy from all the other nations on the earth, not because they were better, not because they were bigger, not because they were prettier, not because they were smarter, not because they were stronger, certainly not because they were more holy, but because God loved them and swore in love to their fathers that he would do this thing for them. They have been set apart that through them the entire world might be blessed. And because the people that were chosen as such have instead rejected the law of the Lord and failed to keep his statutes, God is appalled. And Jeremiah, we're going to be there a little bit today, so you might want to hold this. In Jeremiah chapter 2, in verses 11 through 13, the Lord speaks of it this way. Understand that the Lord our God is omniscient. Fancy word to mean all-knowing. And yet, even though He knew exactly what they would do before they were ever created, even though He spoke about what they would do to Moses and warned the people, don't do what you're going to do. Even though he did all of that, there is a pall and shock in his voice for what they have done, not because he is surprised out of a lack of knowledge, but because he is incredulous. Incredulous that someone could do such a thing. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. I mean, the Lord looks down and he says, Consider all of these nations. Consider the Philistines. Have they departed from Dagon? And Dagon's nothing but a demon. Little water demon God over here. Brought the Ark of the Covenant into his presence, put him right on his face, shattered him. Right across the threshold. Man, Dagon can't help them. He fails them. He leads them to destruction. And yet, man, they've remained faithful to him. They haven't left him. What about Moab? Have they abandoned Molech? He demands that they throw their children in the fire, but have they abandoned him? No, they've stayed with him. What about the Canaanites? Have they abandoned Baal? Though under his purview the walls of Jericho fell? No. These nations don't abandon their gods. They should. These nations should abandon their gods, but they don't. And here's these nations that should abandon their gods, but they won't because they're at least stubborn, if not faithful, But here is Israel, here is Judah, who should have by every single metric clung to her Lord strong and courageous to the very end of days. But she has abandoned. 
she has left. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Friends, that is madness. It is madness to exchange glory for hopelessness. That's madness. It is madness to depart from a fountain of living water to dig out for yourself a silt-filled pit that won't hold anything. That's madness. And you ask yourself, having read the narrative, having been at camp for the week, considering all the things just in the book of Joshua alone, where you see the faithfulness of the Lord to this very people, having seen what they've seen, having experienced the faithfulness of God that they have experienced, And look, it was big stuff, man. I mean, you can recount all the plagues of the Exodus. You've got to talk about the parting of the Red Sea. That must have been something to see. Enough water that comes out of a rock in the Midian wilderness in order to water millions of people. You know, you got this picture in your mind from the Illustrated Kids Bible. You know, Moses standing by a rock about the size of this view screen and, you know, water pouring out like the fountain at the mall. That's not the way it worked. You can't water six million people in the desert like that. We're talking water from a rock. Water. To the point that the erosion is still there to this day. They saw a holy God descend on Sinai in fire. They heard him speak. They heard him confirm his covenant with them. They took four Levites, but the ark of the Lord by which he maintained his presence in their midst had him step off into a flood stage Jordan that was over a hundred yards wide, a roaring torrent with a 600 pound box above their heads. said the Lord caused the water to stack up like stones. They saw citadels and fortresses fall. Giants slain by boys. How in the world can you experience the faithfulness they have experienced and be in your right mind and do such a thing? as to exchange glory for hopelessness and the fountain of living waters for a broken cistern. They did it because they weren't in their right mind. No one who is in their right mind does that. 
And yet, Scripture would teach us that it wasn't their mind that failed them. See, that's the problem. We look at this stuff and it becomes very frustrating. And you're like, man, how dumb are you guys? Okay, they weren't dumb. Solomon was one of the most brilliant engineers that has ever graced the face of God's earth. He wrote Proverbs. They weren't dumb. You read about some of the things that the kings did later. And Jerusalem had battlements, fortifications, and weapons that are a lot like something that you would see in the movie The Lord of the Rings. It was crazy the stuff they were doing. These guys weren't dumb. Before GPS and laser levels, they dug a tunnel, a three-dimensional tunnel, through solid rock starting from two ends, 500 yards long, and managed to meet in the middle of the mountain and only missed it by about 14 inches. They were not dumb. It wasn't their minds that failed them. This madness that would cause them to exchange glory for hopelessness wasn't because their gray matter and their synapses wasn't firing right. There's a hint to it. In Leviticus 26, where we were before in 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul, not your brain, but if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. The Lord says the reason they're refusing to do His commandments is not a question of intellect. It's not a question of P&Ls and stacking up when the Lord has been faithful and when He has it and is it in our best interest to do this. That is not what is going on. Instead, the reason that they are departing from His law is not because of a failure of the mind. It is a madness of the soul. It is a madness of the heart. Their soul abhors. It hates his rules and therefore they will not do his commandments because as we have been driving into our own minds and our own hearts for years and years well over a decade now being yields doing it is the heart not the mind that commands the ship oh, we think we're high thinkers it's the heart that commands the ship. It sets the destination. At best, the mind is the navigator that plots the course to how to get to what the mind wants or the heart wants and to justify why they should be going there in the first place. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, the Lord said, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These people don't have a problem with their brain. Their madness, and it is madness, is not founded between their ears. Their madness is founded in their soul. It's founded in their heart. It has been their issue from the very beginning. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 15 through 16, Moreover, the Lord says, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Why? Because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes. They profaned my Sabbaths. Why? For their heart went after idols.
wasn't their brain. Man, their intellect could very easily look at what happened at Jericho, could look at what happened with Goliath, could look at any of these things and go, okay, buddy, <laughs> it's like the opposite of go woke, go broke. Man, if you're faithful to the Lord, he's faithful to you. He will call you and then cause you to be able to do things that more sensible men would never do. Anybody can do the math on that. The problem is not their head. The problem, it is their heart. It went after idols. It's what it preferred. And having preferred it, they will continue all the way into their exile to Babylon. The heart can either be a blessing or a curse depending on the content of its character, depending on whether it is a heart of flesh or it is a heart born of the Spirit. Look over a couple of pages in Jeremiah chapter 17. In Jeremiah chapter 17, in verse 7 through 8, beautiful piece of Scripture. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah is not being original here. Much like we see Paul later on quoting back from the prophets, the truth of the Lord is never changing. It's always the same. And so Jeremiah is alluding to Psalm chapter 1, a psalm that we still sing to this very day. He like a tree planted by streams of water sets his fruit in season sure and withers not its leaves. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, man. It's, it's what we all aspire to. It's who we want to be. It's the promise of God to His people. Man, if you will do these things, if you will walk in my ways because you're my people, then when the season of drought comes, man, the fountain of living water will be there. I don't think I have to expound upon the imagery there for us to understand it. It's pretty straightforward. Pick your drought, the answer is always the same. God provides. What we don't often realize is the context that that statement is set in. Here is the heart of a man. The heart of a man whose trust is the Lord. Not just that he trusts in the Lord, but God himself is his trust. Man, Lord, whatever you got for me, that's going to be good. That's where I need to be. If you had something better for me, you would have put me there instead. I have faith. I trust. I believe. I believe in your faithfulness to your word, to your people. That is not the only thing that the heart may say. Instead, it may, as 
in Judah's case, lead to rebellion. And just up the page in verse 5 and 6, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Are you seeing the comparison and the contrast here? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. I would have you note something here. Because one of the things that we talked about all week at camp, and I think one of the things that, that we often talk about as the people of God is, is that, you know, the, the Lord is our strength and He is our supply. And, and um, if we we're going to have good success, as He said to um, uh, Joshua, then He's going to have to be strong and courageous in the Lord. Um, not just strong and courageous for the Lord. So the Lord himself is going to be his trust. The Lord himself is going to be his strength. The Lord himself is going to be his courage. Not stuff he drums up in himself. And so the Lord asks us to do all sorts of things that are impossible to do in the flesh. We don't have the strength. We don't have the courage. We don't have the faithfulness. And so we have to go walk in those things. And since it's beyond us, the only way we can actually do that is if it comes from God. And what we often do is set out telling ourselves, lying to ourselves, that we're doing this in the strength of the Lord when we're really just doing it in the strength of our own flesh. And then where that always ends is the same place. Because the flesh can go for a while, but then it wears out. And man, when it wears out, it lays down, man. I mean, it's like a broke down old plow mule. It's done. And it goes boom. And typically that's the point when, you know, reality around us, around us forces us to, to confront the lie that we've told ourselves and that we've believed ourselves. And we go, okay, I wasn't actually operating in the strength of the Lord. I wasn't actually operating in the courage of the Lord. Instead, I was operating in my own strength. And we all sit around and go, mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that's, that's bad. You know, we all do that. And we do, Right? I mean, we do. That's a true statement. We've, we've all done it. We've probably all done it this week. We may have all done it this morning. We've done it when we've become aware of it. We've done it when we haven't become aware of it. There's probably, to some degree, some way we're doing it right now that we don't think we're doing it, but we'll probably soon find out. Okay. One of the things that I find about sin in myself and in people in general is that familiarity diminishes in the mind of a man the extremity of sin. That is to say that sins that are familiar to us seem to be lessened in their offense. For instance, we find sins that are uncommon. And, and I mean this in reference to the bulk of sin. We find sins that are uncommon to be particularly appalling. Murder, rape, child abuse, 
we look at these things and we go, be appalled, O heavens. But we look at things like gluttony or turning to our own strength, and we know they're sinful, and we know we shouldn't be doing that, and we know that God is not happy, and that while all sins aren't equal, any sin will send you to hell. But at the end of the day, they're relatively common, and the commonality of that sin in the heart and mind of a man reduces its significance. Man, I'm, I'm preaching to me. Reduces its significance. Friend, it doesn't reduce its significance in the mind of God. How many times have you said, well, you know, I was just operating in my own strength and it bit me. No, let me tell you something. According to what he says right here in Jeremiah chapter 17 in verse 5 and 6, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Every single time that we step out in our own strength, we are not simply stepping out in our own strength. We are turning away from God. Now, that's not a small thing. That's not something you blow off around the coffee pot and go, well, I guess I'm going to have to have some spiritual self-improvement. That's not what... When we walk in our own strength, we are by default turning from God. You know why? Because you're not Him. And certainly neither am I. And so when we turn to ourselves, I'll tell you what it said. Here's the sound bite. There's ministry to do this weekend, but it's been a hard week. We've got to just get through it. No, you don't. He will establish you. He will bring you through it. He is not only trustworthy. He is your trust, lest he roar forth from Zion against you. So that being the case, You'd think I'd be preached out after the week, but it kind of works the other way around. That being the case, what would make a sound mind? Because we've already established that these people aren't crazy. This is madness, but it is not a madness of the mind. It is a madness of the heart. It is a madness of the soul. What would make a sound mind who had witnessed such faithfulness from God on their behalf time after time after time after time again? You know, how people do with miracles, they tend to see it and, then, and believe it, and then two days later they're like, ah, I'm not so sure. You try to explain it away. Look, man, you might explain away crossing the Red Sea, but then when they turn around 40 years later and do the same thing to the Jordan, it's kind of, you know, look, man, there it is. What would make people of a sound mind who had witnessed such things do something like trade glory for hopelessness? How do you get from the glories of Jericho to, in the context of Amos, Ahaz building a pagan altar in the temple in Jerusalem? How do you get there? The answer, once again, is in Jeremiah chapter 17. This time, not the curse of 5 and 6 or the blessing of 7 and 8, but the explanation 
for how we got the curse of five and six, verse nine and ten. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It is the Lord that looks into the heart and sees the difference between cursed is the man who trusts in man and blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And it's not coming from his mind, folks. His mind's going to be used to justify it. His mind's going to be used to obtain it. But it's not coming from his mind. It's coming from his heart. A heart that is deceitful above all things. This is spooky stuff. People will say in spiritual circles, well, I know it because it was confirmed in my heart. It was confirmed in my spirit. It was confirmed in my soul. Well, good for you. Are you the same one that any time recently has operated in your own strength and turned from the Lord while being completely convinced that you were operating in your own strength until the thing went thermonuclear on you? Man, if you're going to hold your heart up as some kind of evidence... And you better be real clear which heart you're speaking from because this thing is more deceptive than Satan himself, according to the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 17. The most dangerous of all lies is not a lie that is told to you by a serpent. The most dangerous of all lies is the lies you tell yourself that come from a heart that abhors the things of God and instead would cling after something else. A deceitful heart yields madness because it will push your mind to believe, choose, and pursue something that no rational mind on its own would ever believe, choose, or pursue. It will send you on a pursuit that you know full well leads in panic and exile. The deceitful heart leads to madness, and here's why. It leads to madness in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. You guys remember this? It's been seven years. It's crazy. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They did the thing that Daniel was alluding to, that doing the opposite of would fix their problem. If they would go to his truth and gain insight, it would lead to repentance and return to the Lord. Which by default means it was the abandonment of his truth and the lack of insight thereof that led them to rebel against the Lord and all of this calamity, calamity that has never been like that before, Daniel says, to come upon them in Jerusalem. Here's what it looks like generally. 
here's the first event. The one that leads to madness. That claiming to be wise, they became fools. How? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They, by matter of choice, rejected the truth and replaced it with something else. Why? We're about to find out. Therefore, God gave them up to the very thing that caused them to make this choice to begin with. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable Passions. Now he's speaking specifically here of sodomy. But there is a general reality that brings us to that particular conclusion. Therefore, in verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts, in the passions of their hearts to impurity. Because they rejected his truth and him as truth out of desire, not intellect. As a matter of fact, something that is directly the opposite of intellect. Something that is madness. Because the mind has a need to make sense. The heart doesn't. The heart doesn't have to make sense. It just wants what it wants. Reason, logic, Rain on that. I just want what I want. Apart from starvation, which none of us are in danger of, there is no good reason to order an all-wing spicy five-piece at Popeye's. It doesn't exist. And yet about once a month, I want it real bad. Why? I can justify it. I can tell you I walked extra yesterday. That I've been drinking my 128 ounces of water a day. That I eat lots of asparagus. Doesn't matter. There's no good reason to want that. But I do. That's a silly little example. That highlights some stuff that's not silly at all. A sound mind wouldn't do what they're doing. They're doing it because they've been given over to their passion, and their passion doesn't care whether it makes sense or not. Now, it will endeavor to justify itself. It will replace the truth with a lie. It will move from wisdom to foolishness and claim its wisdom. Man, Paul talks about that to the Corinthians a bunch. But at the end of the day, the heart doesn't care. Insanity is replaced with madness because that's what the heart of the people wanted. They are not ruled by truth. They are given over to passion for the problem with making or remaking God is in the end we can only draw from one image. And so these people 
it says, rejected the law of the Lord and failed to keep his statutes specifically because their, their lies have led them astray. Man, a serpent didn't lie to them. Their neighbors didn't lie to them, at least not effectually. It wasn't the lies of the enemy that led them astray. It wasn't the lies of the Moabites or the Philistines or the Tyrenians. It wasn't the lies of the Edomites. They ended up in the position where they were in because their lies, their own lies, the ones they told themselves, led them astray. The problem with replacing the truth of God with a lie is that when it comes to the lie, we only have one image to draw from, and it's our own. And therefore, the Lord says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. The problem with making God in our own image is that it's always going to look just like us. And what you get is madness on parade. People abandoning glory in exchange for hopelessness. Ahaz burning his son, the very king of Judah that sat on David's throne burning his own son as a sacrifice on the altar. What you get is what you're seeing on TV this morning. Scrawled in spray paint is, if abortion is not safe, neither are you. Why would the heart turn from hopeful truth to insane lie? And why would the heart do that? Well, Perhaps because it is desperately wicked. <laughs> but that wickedness knows a lot of manifestation. And i got to tell you that the reason that the heart of a man would ultimately turn away from the truth and turn to a lie is because the truth is not just any truth, but the truth of God himself, a God who is holy and for fallen human beings who are common and vulgar, Holiness is hard. Holiness is hard, friends. It's hard directly. In Exodus chapter 20, when the Lord had descended on fire and spoke His covenant to all of the people, it says, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Man, just being exposed to holiness is withering to the flesh. As a matter of fact, when people begin to talk about the way that the Spirit moved in a particular service, one metric that you can often use to determine whether it was legitimate or not is the condition of the people after it's over. 
If they're hooping and hollering like they just came from a great concert or an awesome ball game, you can pretty much bet it's not legitimate. Because every time you see the manifest presence of the Lord, of a holy God, show himself to his people from one end of scripture to the other, what you find is people that, yes, are joyous and also in their flesh are destroyed. It will lay you on your face. For he is a fearful and holy God. Oh man, you will rejoice. It's not a ball game. So much more than that. Holiness is hard directly, just being in the presence of a holy God. I mean, how many times he told the children of Israel, don't even come up and touch the mountain, you'll die. Holiness is also hard in what it requires. Because it's, by definition, different than what we're used to. I mean, that's what holiness means, is other than, set apart, different. So when a holy God requires something that is holy of an unholy people, it is way, way, way outside the box for them. And so once again, we've got Judah on our mind, so we turn ourselves to the first time we see this pattern of madness unfolding in them that begins in their heart, is contrary to what ought to be in their head, but replaces what ought to be in their head. Exodus 32.1 When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now consider what the people said 40 days prior. You go talk to him. Don't you let, don't you let him talk to us. We'll die. You go talk to him. Whatever he tells you to do, we'll do it. So here you have a people that just came out of a country that was so in the depth of lawlessness that they are the original picture of the Antichrist. There is demonic gods everywhere. They have seen the polished up facade. They've seen the dark and dirty reality that's behind it. And now, having seen that, they're seeing a truly holy God. And while these demon gods in Egypt are full levels of creation above them, at least they're still creatures. To some degree, they can be dealt with. To some degree, they can be managed. They run across the Lord God, and He cannot be managed. He cannot be dealt with. You're not going to deal with him. He's going to deal with you. You're not going to manage him. He's going to manage you. And they know it. They fear for their lives because of their sinfulness and they see his holiness. Don't let him talk to us. You go talk to him. We'll die. What happens? Moses goes up the mountain. He ain't been back for 40 days. They they all know there's nothing up there, man. There's nothing down here. There sure up, ain't nothing up on that rocky peak. There's no water. There's no food. He's been gone for 40 days. There's only one conclusion that you can draw. That, that God up there that we were afraid was going to kill us has killed him. 
He's smoked, man. He is gone. He is dead. And he led us out here, and we're out here in the middle of nowhere. Tell you what, Aaron, we're ready to go back to the status quo. We thought slavery was scary. Turns out, not such a bad deal. You may live under the whip, but at least you will live. Make for, our, make for us something we're familiar with. Make for us something that we can wrap our minds around. Make for us something that we can handle and we'll worship that because our heart is not righteously fearful but is sinfully terrified. Holiness is hard. It's hard directly and it's hard in what it requires. It might require you to set out in the desert for 40 days without a word. That's hard. And when things get hard, the heart gets whiny. I know, I listen to mine all the time. It's the whining in your ear. Things are hard. It prompts you to replace the truth of God with a lie because the lie is easier than the truth. And madness ensues. The result according to Jeremiah in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, is the condemnation of Judah. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart, on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their Asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Notice this judgment written with an iron pen and a tip of diamond upon the tablets of their hearts that abhorred the things of God because of His holiness. While that's going on, their children are remembering their altars and their shirim beside every green tree and on the high hills. What happened to Judah was self-inflicted. But it didn't stay with those that inflicted it. It was passed on. It was passed on to their children and their children's children in an unbroken and reinforcing cycle until it comes to its fullness, God roars and fire falls. But I want you to understand that it wasn't, it's not that it came upon their children because of sour grapes. In Jeremiah chapter 31, in those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So you've heard the term sour grapes. And what this means out of Scripture is this. Jeremiah says there's this proverb that's told in Israel and it's not true. 
the father sinned and the children are going to pay the price. He says the reality is, is that everyone pays the price for their own sin. Well, then how is it that this thing becomes generational? How is it that it goes from being the sin of individuals in an individual generation to something generational and cyclical that repeats itself with their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids all the way down the line till boom? And the answer is because of witness. Because of witness. Witness is like the heart. It's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily bad. It can be either way. But either way, it's powerful. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see an example of what powerful witness looks like when it's good. Therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Man, amen. Let us look to this great cloud of witnesses. Let us look to Christ himself. Let us look to the faithfulness of God and be encouraged in those things. This is what Alvin preached on Thursday night, or at least a portion of it. It's good stuff, man. Look what God did for Joshua. Look what he did for Caleb. Look what he did for David. Look what he did. Look what he did. But witness works the other way, too. Man, you know, I've said this before. I think I said it last week. People ask me, when was the last time you seen your dad? Last time I looked in the mirror. The genetic reality is strong. But it's more than that. I catch my dad. I, I see my dad and myself all the time. I hear it in the way I talk, the turn of the phrase, the mannerisms, the way I move. It's getting worse, Jim. Now listen, I respect my dad more than that. I love my father. Man, me and my dad are were tight, are tight. I, I never was that kid that had to fall out with dad when he was a tough teenager. I mean, we're tight, man. I, I think as much of my dad as I can think. But let me tell you something. Danger's a square, man. Sharp on the corners. I don't necessarily want to have the same mannerisms that he has. Let them be his. I'll have mine. And yet, there they are. Rachel loves to point them out to me. She says, okay, Danny Joe, all the time. I want to be cooler than that. And yet here I am. My sister's not that way. My little brother's not that way. You know why I'm that way? Because every single minute that I didn't have to be at church, in school, or in bed, I spent with my dad when I was growing up. I can't get past it. Neither could they. Take a lesson, fathers. They believed their own lies and their children remembered. And their children remembered. And their children remembered. And their children remembered. And it became generational unto their destruction. For some of us, what that means is, is we, we've got to have in clarity in the insight that comes from the truth of the Lord that Daniel was talking about, we've got to be those people that, that hang tight. 
for some of us, that means we've got to break a cycle that's been moving through generations, perhaps as far back as we can trace our family tree. There's only one way it'll be broke. By replacing the lie with the truth. Doing the things of holiness that are hard. And believing the word of God above and beyond our own deceitful hearts. So what do you do with that? Practical application, man. I think Amos is ripe for it. What do you do with that? What do you do with the good old U.S. of A. where we are today? Because we're not in Judah. And we're not in Israel. And we don't have the promises that they had as a nation. We may hold to that as individuals. We may be part of that covenant. I may be. You may be. Mount Zion may be. But nationally, we don't have anything like that. So what do we do with that? Well, let me tell you, as far as it comes to us today in this country, let me give some pastoral opinion here. It's not that judgment is coming. Judgment is here. It's here, man. It has arrived. We were traveling back from camp this weekend when we got the news that Roe versus Wade had been overturned. And, man, I rejoiced. I rejoiced. I got to tell you, Guys, I'll argue with this pew right here, and 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 I'm talking grade school, first grade, second grade. Like I was told by teachers, you're not supposed to discuss that in class anymore. Because man, I would argue with. I mean, I'd argue now, and it was an issue of character for me. So especially at that age, I would come at your character pretty hard. There was one person in particular that I can think of that we argued all the way through to graduation on this topic. Man, I rejoiced when I heard it. And we should. But don't kill the fatted calf yet. (laughs) You know, even this decision that came this weekend, it, it didn't... It didn't make abortion illegal in the United States. All it did was just do what the Constitution was always supposed to do and what the way a republic is always supposed to function. If there is not specific license that is given, specific power given to the federal government, then it ought to belong to the states, and that's all they said. Leave it up to the states to decide. Let me tell you, there'll be plenty of states that decide that abortion ought to be like ice cream, and you just ought to be able to get it wherever you want to go. There'll be states that don't. Praise the Lord. Notice the response of the people in this country just to the fact that purview has been given back to the states instead of being demanded nationally. They're burning pregnancy help centers. There's been people arrested for attempted murder, vandalism, riots. If abortion is not safe, you're not safe. And all we did was turn the purview back to the states. We didn't make anything illegal. You know why? Because legalism isn't the answer. When you look to Amos, he didn't just say, 
I will not revoke the punishment because they've not kept my statutes. The reason they didn't keep his statutes was because they rejected the law of the Lord. And the reason they rejected the law of the Lord was because their heart and their soul abhorred it. Friends, legalism isn't the answer. I'm glad we got a legal ruling, but it's not going to fix the problem. As a matter of fact, that thing dropped and it was rejoice and oh boy, we're just getting started. It is just now beginning. Let me tell you, when the Lord roars from Zion, it is only His children who come trembling. The lost, the wicked, they harden their hearts in rebellion. That's what you're seeing right now. You apply the statute of the law apart from the heart that wants the law, and it doesn't cause people to come trembling. It doesn't cause people to bow the knee. It causes them to harden and rebel. They will show you their teeth. Legalism's not the answer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. The law of God is only good and effectual for the people of God. Should it be legal? Amen. Man, I wish they'd make that thing illegal in every single state, territory. And America's not enough, man. The Lord is the Lord of the earth. But even if they did, it won't fix the problem. The only thing that will fix the problem is when the heart of the people changes that's it and guys while abortion should be illegal if the heart of the people changed you could have legal abortion and have zero abortions it's the heart man Praise the Lord, it was overturned. We're not done. As a matter of fact, we're probably just getting started. I read an online newsletter this week that said, With huge victories come huge stewardship. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I must see and assess today's news through the correct lenses. My battle against abortion was never against flesh and blood. It was never a fight against the, quote, baby-killing liberals. The closure of my local Planned Parenthood is no more my ultimate goal than Trumpism was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. No doubt, God uses lower means for more ultimate ends. Cyrus may be a man God used to do good, but Cyrus is still a sketchy dude. God's ways are bigger than ours. My lenses have to be God's kingdom and his ultimate plan, not my political affiliation. Jamie Freeman. The only thing that will suffice is a change of heart. A heart that has no ability to change itself. But must be remade, not in its own image, but in the image of its creator. 
what does the saint do in the midst of judgment upon the nation around him? What does he do? What he does, well, if you want to know what you do, you look as witness to what other saints who were in the midst of judgment have done. There's no better place to look than one of the saints of Judah when the very judgment that God roared about fell upon his people. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asuras, by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, okay, here is how the saint in the midst of judgment responds on behalf of his nation whose heart is hard. The first thing he does is he owns it. He makes confession I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. Now, I would have you note that to the best that we know, as a matter of fact, quite the opposite, Daniel has never, ever, ever bought into the lie. He's not bowed his knee to Baal. His heart has not despised the things of the Lord. Instead, his heart loves the things of the Lord because he is the Lord's. He's born again. He's a new creation. And yet, he makes no bones about it. He owns it. He makes confession for the sin of the nation of which he is a part. We have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse of the oath that are written in the law of Moses. Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. 
He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. And yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. We have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned and done wickedly. What the saint does is own the sin of his nation. He never says, Lord, they did this, they did this, they did this. He says, we did it. How in the world did we do it? We certainly weren't effectual in stopping it. We didn't turn the world upside down. He says we're guilty. And you're good. And you brought on us what you said you would bring on us. And it's good that you did it. You are justified. You are right. You're right. And then he says this. O Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel eats it every day. He says, we are guilty. We have no standing to ask for anything. And so we plead with you, not based on our standing and not based on our righteousness, but simply because we are convinced that you are merciful and that you glorify yourself in mercy. Not because, hey Lord, we've killed 160 million or however many it's been and praise God we're now letting states decide whether they want to keep killing them or not. You know, we've done a little bit of something so hey, show us a little love. He doesn't do any of that. He says we're guilty. We deserve everything you would give us, perhaps more. Now please, Lord, because you're merciful. Because you're good. Don't look at us. Look at you. Look at you. Because you glorify yourself in mercy. 
Lord, forgive. Be compassionate. Not that we lock to the Lord saying, hey, listen, we know your word says if we repent, you'll forgive us. So uh, we're getting with repenting. We need you to get with forgiving. Those who come demanding mercy do not possess the necessary repentance that is required to merit it. falls on his face and he pleads that the Lord would be good without cause in him but simply because his name has been associated with Jerusalem say yeah pastor but his name ain't been associated with us No, his name has not been associated with the Republic of the United States of America. But it has been associated with me. And it has been associated with you. And it has been associated with many here that are called by his name. And if his people would repent and turn their hearts towards him. If indeed when the Lord roars from Zion, if his people would come trembling, then he is faithful. He is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to be merciful. You want to know what the saint looks like in the midst of this? It looks like one that is on their knees that is beseeching the Lord for mercy for the sake of his own name and not for ours. It's going to be a fight, man. This deal's just getting started. I pray the Lord that we come to him in this manner. So let's do that.